What causes, that's James 4, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and you fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think that Scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? But he gives us more grace. That is why the Scripture says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When, the, when you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag. All such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. This is God's word. And once again, uh, we thank him uh, for it. Just before we come to the um, word of God, let's um, pray for his help. Lord, uh, we need you to speak to us right now. We don't want to hear the words of uh, a mere man. We want to hear what you have to say to us uh, in your book uh, about humility, about pride. Help us, Lord, to listen. Give us ears that are open so that we might indeed be blessed. We ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of James may seem like a big collection of wise sayings just thrown together into, into a kind of package. However, that's not the intention. That's not the way uh, it's supposed to be. One writer talks about topical intentionality. Topical intentionality. I find that little phrase particularly helpful. And chapter four, we see this very clearly where he exposes pride and he invites us to humility and a kind of bringing it together. We've been thinking right throughout this series that if we're going to be double-minded, it's going to come out in certain ways. 
And double-minded people reveal their double-mindedness in one way by showing pride and a lack of humility. If we are so double-minded and say yes to pride and let it run riot, and if we say no to humility and reject any such notion of humility, it will not end well, says James. It will not end well. And history is littered with examples of pride-filled people who reject the gospel, who reject truth, who reject humility, and it always ended in a mess. Always. Pride is like spiritual cancer. Pride is like spiritual heart disease. So let's have a quick summary of 1 to 10, because I think that it's very important for us to have the context in place before we look at verses 11 to 17. And a few headings there to hopefully help The problem is pride. It always is pride. And we see two things. I'll put them both up there so you can see them. It causes division within the church. That's verses one and two. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. When worldly attitudes are allowed into the church, three people like me and you, it's destructive. Sinful desires within us come out and, and they cause quarrels and fights. And you, when a church has quarreling and fighting going on, there's always a reason. And the reason always is pride. It causes broken fellowship within the church and it causes broken fellowship with God, verses 2 right through to verse 5. And we can see it in a number of ways. For instance, we don't pray. Um, that's one way we can see that at the end of verse 2. You quarrel and you fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. You do not ask God. Now, we should ask God, shouldn't we? We should seek his wisdom and his power, but we don't. We can't when we're full of pride. So there's no prayer. And then verse 3, of course, there's no answer. If there's no prayer, there's no answer. Our prideful hearts seek for worldly pleasures from wrong motives. Verse 3, when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. A sinful agenda leading to pride cuts us off from God. We should seek him and we should seek his agenda, but we don't because of pride. And the result in verse 4 is adultery. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. When pride rules our hearts and minds, we we slip and we slide into spiritual infidelity. We think we've got it all. We've got it sussed. It's my way, our way, not his way. And verse 5, in their pride, we deny our very spiritual character. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? He saves us. He indwells us. He gives us his Holy Spirit, and yet we act in a very different worldly way. The problem is pride. Look at what it does. Division within the church Broken fellowship with God. Does that not explain the mess we see all around us? The answer, of course, is humility. And you've been looking at that over this last number of weeks. 
verses 6 to 9. This is the solution, the remedy, the way to have harmony with God is humility. Verse 6, but he gives us more grace. That is why Scripture says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. See, the the proud um, are driven by ego. (laughs) They want to displace God. The humble are driven by grace and receive more grace and then more grace. We're constantly, therefore, making a choice. I am constantly making a choice. Pride or humility, ego or grace. And of course, this idea of humility leads us to submission to God. This is the contrary, of course, to, or the counter to pride. Verse 7, submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. We're to actively obey, actively follow, continually offer ourselves to God because we're in a holy war. And we should be coming to God regularly and say, God, what's wrong with me? What's the cure? What's wrong with me? What's the cure? We need to submit ourselves to God and resist the devil. Resist the devil. Why would we want to, in a sense, entrust ourselves to the devil? Which is, in a sense, what pride leads us to. He's the great enemy of our souls. He's the opposer of all that is good. He's the persecutor of the church. He's the architect of pain and confusion in the world. Why would we submit to him? You see, humility means we submit ourselves to God and we resist the devil, not the other way around. Sadly, very often we submit to the devil and resist God. It's a disaster. And we see the disaster all around us. Do you know those who are double-minded make it easy for the one who would long to destroy us, destroy our faith, destroy our family, destroy our church? So we're seeing here the answer of humility, driven by grace, submitting to God, resisting the evil one. And then very quickly, closeness to God, verse 8, come near to God and he will come near to you. This is a soul-tingling truth, is it not? A a wonderful invitation. Not pretending, not acting out a kind of, uh, let's play at this. This constant, ongoing coming to him. And guess what? He will come near to us. That's the answer. And then it'd be the holiness before God. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Um, sorry, that's verse, that's verse nine. Uh, wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Little couplet there. Externally, wash your hands. Internally, purify your hearts. We, as people, tend not to like to be told we've got sin and we need to deal with it. I don't like to be told that. None of us like to be told that. But we should never tire of hearing about forgiveness, about externally washing our hands and internally seeing our hearts purified. 
Are we seeing here that... The, sorry, the kind of the situation we're in here, with single-minded humility based on holiness, washing hands, purifying hearts, double-minded pride based on worldly agendas, dirty hands, impure hearts. And in verse nine, he, he, he says, we should grieve over that sin. Grieve, mourn, wail, change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Now, again, our flippant, skin-deep age finds this very hard to take. Yes, Christianity is preeminently a religion of joy, but with these words we are expected to have and show this deep, penetrating sorrow. When we sin, when we fall, when we fail, when pride rules, there should be heartfelt Repentance, grieve, mourn, wail. Sadly, this is often missing, isn't it? In my life and in yours. See, some proud Christians, if there such a thing can really exist, some proud Christians claim to be saved and yet live morally lax lives. They, they, they enjoy their sin. They laugh at sin. They play with sin. And we need to be humble. And we need to mourn and grieve and wail over sin. And then it ends with this kind of introduction, this long introduction. It ends with this command, verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. That's it. Humble yourselves before the Lord. That's the command. I wonder today, do you, do you need to be lifted up? Because if truth be told, spiritually, you're down. Do, do you want to be lifted up? Maybe life at the moment is particularly hard for you. Um, maybe you're in a, a bit of a, an emotional uh, or spiritual mess. Do you want to be lifted up? I'm going to let that question hang there because I think it's important. Do you want to be lifted up? Then it requires humility. Humble yourselves before the Lord. Bowing in total submission to God, yielding our total being to Jesus, being a living sacrifice before him, giving our everything to him. Here's the thing that I suppose I've seen too often in my own life and in the lives of those I pastor is that we want to be proud rebels at the same time as claiming to be humble believers. Can't happen. That's double-mindedness that James is dealing with right throughout this book. If you have that humble attitude, do you know what will happen? He will pour grace upon grace upon grace upon grace onto your head, your very life. You will never be the same again. He will lift you up. 
And that leads us basically to, to the, the, the verses we want to look at today. But I hope that's, you see the important context there. James gives us two practical examples, two issues. Uh, the first one is basically slandering in verses 11 and 12. Brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it but sitting in judgment on it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy, but you, who are you to judge? Your neighbor. So he's given two examples here of the difference between um, humility and pride. The proud person slanders and boasts. The humble person encourages and is modest. And we see that in, in three ways there. I think it's very important we see these things and put them up together. See, see when we boast, um, we, we slander one another. When we're full of pride, we, we actually slander other people. It's a sign of pride. To slander means to um, speak against someone. It includes unpleasant things like gossiping, criticizing, lying. Don't do it to brothers, he says. Notice he starts off verse 13. Brothers, do not slander one another. James uses the word brother a lot. Uh, stressing um, who we are. And basically it's like this. James is saying, don't do that to your blood-bought brothers and sisters. Jesus bought them with his very blood. Who are you to slander them? And then secondly, in, in to the end of verse 11, we, we judge the very word of God. This is unlawful activity. This is high treason. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. So Jesus says, love your, uh, your family, love your, love your brother. To disobey this is a great sin. So we need to be very clear about this. To proudly judge a brother or sister is to judge the word of God because the word of God says you shouldn't do it. And if we decide we're going to do it, then that's a grave sin, isn't it? But the proud still do it. And then thirdly, in verse 12, it replaces God as a lawgiver. I mean, this is absolutely ridiculous, isn't it? But those who are proud set themselves above God. Verse 12, there's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? See, the proud set themselves above God and in a sense displace God and uh, proudly act like God in their own image, as it were, in their own eyes. So can, can you see what this proud activity looks like when we slander one another? It's defamation against a brother, says James. It's judging the word of God, and it's replacing God as the lawgiver. <laughs> you can see why we shouldn't do it. We should not do this. This is rampant in the world. I mean, all you've got to do is listen to politics, isn't it? Or, or listen to the news or, 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 or what's going on in our world. It's rampant in the world. Tragically, it's tolerated in the church. 
It's tolerated in Christian homes and friendship circles. It's tolerated. I think it was um, John Piper called it uh, as one of the respectable sins in the church. Oh, we wouldn't commit physical adultery, but we don't mind slandering a brother or sister. We almost expect it within the church. We sometimes encourage it. And very often we excuse it. But actually, it's not on. James says, it's proof of a lack of humility, a lack of grace. Maybe, and maybe even it's proof of a lack of salvation. If we really wanted to fame our brothers and sisters and judge the word of God and replace God as lawgiver, it's pretty serious. I mean, how could a Christian do that? In my experience, those guilty of such activity often seem unaware of their guilt of it. Or, it's either that, they're either unaware of it or they simply don't care about it. But can I say to you, dear friends, as the church family here, we owe it for the glory of God, for the protection of his church, and for the effectiveness of our testimony to challenge such people. And very often what we do is we, we, we kind of ignore the slanderer, the defamer. We sort of stay away from them. We avoid them. We tolerate them. We let them loose with other people. We just say, oh. When really, what we should be doing is Challenging them. Challenging them. And say, brother or sister, what do you make of James chapter 4, verse 11 and 12? What do you make of that? Again, I think we all know that the proud have this judgmental, critical, fault-finding spirit while ignoring their own sin. And the Bible calls us to be humble, to be gracious, to be kind and patient and see our own sin and wash our hands and grieve over it. So we're seeing, seeing pride showing itself in slander and we need humility. We're also, in verses 13 to 17, seeing Pride showing itself in boasting, uh, and we need humility as well in this area. Sadly and miserably, the two often go uh, hand in hand because there's this battle going on. Now, let's quickly deal with this. Verse 13 is really the, the, the situation that uh, James uh, paints for us a, another image, another kind of word picture. Now, listen, he says. Today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. So, a businessman is making his plans, and James invites us, his readers, and us to look at our diaries, look at our agendas, and our plans, and our dreams, and our hopes. And he says, I want you to be careful how you undertake all of this stuff. Because if we're the kind of people who say, you know what, I'm going to do this and that, 
and then I'm going to move on to the next this and that, and then I'm going to have a whole pile of this, this and that, and I'm going to work my way through. You've got to be very careful. Now, again, we need balance because God is not against making plans. Of course he's not. He, he wants church leaders to make plans. He wants parents to make plans. But what he is against is making plans without any reference to him. He's against us making any plans without any serious reference to him. And again, you know, isn't that the way we often live? We, with our Christian trappings and our evangelical nods and our spiritual language, we can have all of that, and yet we rarely ask God to be part of our plans. That's really a form of a practical atheism. Oh, we believe in God, but actually don't want God to interfere in my plans. It's another form of the double-mindedness that we've been thinking about. Acting as if God doesn't matter. Acting as if God doesn't care or God doesn't actually have a plan for us or for me. And very often we are people who um, have our minds already made up um, and God uh, will have to fit in with our plans. You see, it's another form of pride. I know it all. I mean, I want it all. I'm going to do things my way, God. Boasting statements minus God. Now, notice that then how James deals with this kind of proud attitude. And with this, we work our way to a conclusion. Verse 14, he says, listen, that's just pure ignorance or impure ignorance, you might say. Verse 14, why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. See, that's the fundamental problem, isn't it? We don't know. Because the secret things belong to him. The perfect knowledge belongs to him alone. We act as if we are in control of time and space, our time, our space. And we act as if we have all the information that we need to go on with life. And yet Jim says, you don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. He says, you're ignorant. And see, pride will say, oh, that's ridiculous. Humility will say, James, you're 100% right. I mean, do we know for certain what's going to happen tomorrow? Do we? No. Now, we could guess what's going to happen tomorrow. You may have your agenda kind of mapped out for you, and you may be right. In fact, you probably will be right. But you can't be certain because we're weak and we're ignorant. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. So show a little bit of humility, he says. Ignorance is the problem. Frailty is the second part of the problem. That's the end of verse 14. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. James spelled it out. And he uses another illustration, the illustration of mist. In verse 14b. When you see mist, um, it, it, doesn't it seem very heavy and, and thick and permanent and lasting? Doesn't it? You know, got that feel about it? 
and yet within minutes it can be burnt off by the sun. Now, I got this little bit of uh, the stat here just to show you that I actually do a wee bit of research for these sermons. Did you know, apparently, that a mist covering 10 acres of ground and 100 feet thick contains how much water? About a glass full. In billions and billions and billions and billions and billions of droplets. That's about half an acre's worth of mist there consumed. Now, isn't that interesting? I hope that's true. Somebody's probably, some of these scientists, oh, the scientists have gone. Um, uh, some scientists would probably say that's absolute nonsense. But I think there's actually truth in that. I've heard that before many times. And so it is with life, says James. It looks permanent, it looks lasting, it looks as if we're really in control. And when we're young, you know, we think we will live forever, don't we? There's health and a degree of wealth, and a fair amount of just ignorance. And there's happiness, and there's success, and there's goals to achieve. But in a flick of a finger, just a flick of a finger, a flick of a finger, it can be gone. What is your life, says James? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Do you know the, the, the parable in Luke 12? The parable of the rich fool? gathered in a big crop. And that parable, if you, if you read it, go home and read it this afternoon, is full of I and my. And what will I do? I have no place to uh, store my crops. This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger barns. And then I will store all my grain and my goods. It goes on like that. And then I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things for your laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. God said to him, you fool, this very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? See, there was a man acting like God. There was a man acting with pride. And yet he had no control of anything. Recently, we had the tragedy of the little um, submarine, the tourist submarine that was down to uh, look at the Titanic. So it's been in the news recently. It reminded me of the story when it was first launched. Do you know what they said about the Titanic? God himself couldn't sink it. That's what they said about it. God himself couldn't sink it. And yet a bit of frozen water, a bit of ice, tore a 300-foot hole in the bottom of the ship and it sank. So I'm not trying to be doom and gloom. First, thing, first Sunday back, here he's asking all these questions. I mean, are you going to wake up in the morning? Are you? What about um, getting home from work tomorrow? Or what about that, uh, that family you have, or that um, holiday you have booked? What about next Christmas? Will you see it? Are you, like some of us, 
looking forward to retirement? Will it come? James says, resist presumption and be humble. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Make plans, yes. Book your holiday, yes. Think about Christmas, yes. And prepare for retirement, yes. But don't you think it's about you and what you're doing? It's about what he is doing in and for you. Don't let your diary make an atheist out of you. So ignorance, you don't know what's going to happen about tomorrow. This is all part of the pride-humility battle. Weakness, you're just like mist. Uh, Frailty uh, is connected to that. But then we come to reliance in verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. This is what we thought about with the children. Now, if we realize just how unpredictable and uncertain life is, maybe Jesus would be more glorious to us. The problem with us and the, and the kind of world we live in with all the, the extras that we have, all the insurances that we have and the health system that we have is that um, we don't really believe that life is unpredictable or uncertain. And so Jesus is less glorious than he needs to be. But here in verse 15, we have the right mindset as dependence and reliance on God. If it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. Now, James is not uh, concerned about whether we use DV or God willing at the end of each sentence. Now, when I was young, it was common for Christians to say, you know, God willing or DV at the end of every announcement or everything that they said. Now, that's not wrong, but that's not really what James is getting at. He's, he's not concerned about what we say. He's more concerned about how we think and pray. So it's not language he's really dealing with here. It's more a mindset. Are you dependent, reliant on God, or do you make plans all based on you, yourself, and those around you. Uh, David Gibson, in his wee commentary on James, uh, uh, quotes William Ernest Henley's Invictus poem, you know, I am master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. James says, oh, no, you're not. <laughs> oh, no, you're not. That's the way the world thinks. Jesus is the master of my fate. Jesus is the captain of my soul. And then he goes on in verse 16 about just the state arrogance. As it is, you boast and you brag, such boasting is evil. I mean, the anthem of the world is double-mindedness, basically. You, you say this, you do the other, you look after yourself. It's practical atheism. It's unbelievable for the Christian to come out with such stuff. It's idiotic. Think about it for a minute. Sinful creatures living in a whirlpool of idiotic nonsense. And so many of us are dragged into that. And James says it's absolutely inexcusable. Lastly, verse 17, anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. Throughout the whole of the book, James has been dealing with obedience, the priority of obedience. It's not enough to know the truth. It must be obeyed. To know something and not do it is very, very dangerous. 
That's why I often say, isn't it very dangerous to be in church, <laughs> to hear the truth? If you don't do it, then that's extremely dangerous. It's rebellion. It's sin. Our humility is measured by our attitude towards obedience. So we need to resist inactivity. We need to resist disobedience and we need to resist saying, you know what, God, I'm going to do this my way all the time. Do nothing and you sin. Know what you ought to do and don't do it. That's sin. Because humility means obedience. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. James is pleading with us. In fact, Jesus is pleading with us. God is pleading with us. Draw near to me and I will change you. And then you'll really live. So this battle for pride and humility is being fought in my heart and your heart, even right now. And the call of the Spirit, the call of the Word is to be humble, be like Jesus. Do you remember how we began the service? Being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself. He can and he needs to change us. By resisting slander and criticism and judgment in our attitude to others, they're the part of James 4. By resisting boasting and presumption in our attitude to life. And by resisting inactivity and laziness and selfishness in our attitude to obedience. So, so chapter 4 is about pride and humility, about the difference between self and Jesus. The difference between how the world lives and how the spirit leads. And with so much rich teaching there. So we don't end up being double-minded. But we live singly minded for the glory of Jesus. And receive the blessing that he has for us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for uh, the just the clear teaching that you inspired uh, through your writer, your servant, James. And we thank you that we have a, an opportunity to, to hear today. We pray for us as we battle against pride, as we seek to be humble, as uh, we engage with this, we ask that your spirit and your word might speak again and again into our lives. Because we need your word and we need your way. We ask for this help in Jesus' name. Amen.